Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 269. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, not long to go before Christmas, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up we have Gaming the Future, the fact article by Simon Hildebrandt. Then we have a two-part story this week and next week, The Boneless One by Alec Nivala Lee. Then we have an interview coming up with Gareth Powell. Gareth Powell is on the verge of stardom with Akak Makak, a new novel that's coming out by Gareth. So I've got a little interview with him as well because Gareth's book is getting publicised all over the place. And I just was dying to get him on board. Then we have Portly Planet by our very own Diane Severson. That is today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. <laughs> So before we get into today's show, just a little heads up for next week. Next week is that kind of in-between month, or in-between week, between the Christmas and the New Year. And what I like to do is normally do a a meta show, but as it happens, we're doing like a two-part, you know, I haven't planned this very well, we're doing a two-part story, and I've got Adam Pratt with his Cheapskates review as well. So it'll be a show with a big chunk of meta data in there as well, telling everything, you know, about what's gone before. And what my plans are for 2013 for the Sofa and the District of Wonders. So that's coming up next week. Let's get straight in then. Today's show, we have Game in the Future, Simon Sir. Hi, my name's Simon Hildebrandt, and welcome to Gaming the Future, where we explore the intersection of great games and great science fiction. This episode I'll be talking about Startopia, a game that combines sci-fi tropes, a great sense of humour, and enormous replayability into a single highly underrated package. This is a tough article for me to write, particularly if I'm going to be objective and avoid a 10-minute love note. If I get mired in superlatives, please take this episode with a grain of salt, but I do love this game. So let's start with the basics. Startopia is a management sim in the vein of Dungeon Keeper or Sim Hospital. In this case, you're a space station overseer tasked with building various new facilities to service the needs of visiting aliens, recruiting the most suitable of those aliens to work in said facilities, and expanding your domain through economic or more forceful means. That's the high-level overview, but the reality is a lot more complicated. 
a wide variety of aliens with a wide variety of needs, all serviced by an enormous diversity of facilities, makes keeping everyone happy, or even alive, tremendously challenging and satisfying. That complexity doesn't make the game inaccessible, though. Excellent tutorials and a graduated series of campaign levels introduces each aspect of the game smoothly, not just explaining concepts, but requiring that they be demonstrated before the player advances, so you won't get left behind. In fact, the main campaign can be thought of as an extended tutorial, with most of the levels employing a restricted subset of the game's full palette of aliens and buildings to encourage the player to explore a particular facet of the game's mechanics, say, research, farming, warfare, or entertainment. It's not until the final level that the last restrictions come off, and the player can bring Startopia's full potential to life. From there, your choices extend still further, custom single and multiplayer game types, and a heap of fan-made missions created by a passionate community who still love this game, despite its age. It was published in 2001. So it's a fun game, and from what I've said so far, it's pretty obvious that it's got a futuristic setting. But that's not what gaming the future is really about. So is it great sci-fi? Well, I'd posit a resounding yes, like the Hitchhiker's Guide novels, and for similar reasons. What we're dealing with here is a pitch-perfect parody-slash-homage to many of the sci-fi greats, and as such, it's a special treat for the observant sci-fi fan. To get a better idea of what I mean, let's start with the game's advisor AI, Val. Yep, that's right, an AI called Val. And the Sly 2001 references don't end there. Here's a random throwaway quote you might hear Val intone as you play. You know, you remind me of one of my earlier charges. I believe his name was Dave. I can't remember much more than that, as my memory banks received some damage during that period. And if you like that, check out the show notes for a link to the game's opening cinematic. There's something special in there for 2001 fans as well. If your sense of humour is anything like mine, you'll find these little comments from Val hilarious. At different times I've heard him claim to have met Einstein, to have been responsible for Stonehenge, and even for our last Ice Age. But what really sells it is the voice that they recruited for this character, William Franklin, the actor who took over for Peter Jones as the book, or the narrator, in the third, fourth, and fifth radio series of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The familiar English voice, coupled with those comically arrogant, very proper lines, makes Val a truly memorable game character. Startopia's aliens are also a cocktail of sci-fi tropes and references. Of the nine distinct races, the most familiar are the ones called the Greys, for obvious reasons. Val at one stage is moved to comment, Seeing the Greys reminds me of when they used to mutilate cattle. Still, they've grown out of that now. The Dahanese sirens represent an entirely different stereotype, the inhumanly beautiful and vivacious alien intent on seducing all they encounter. Incidentally, I think Dave Lister from Red Dwarf summed up this stereotype best by saying, Rimmer, there's nothing out there, you know. There's nobody out there. No alien monsters, no Zargon warships, no beautiful blondes with beehive hairdos who say, Show me more of this earth thing called kissing the Grekatargs are squat, insectile creatures, the Kamaramans are four-armed purple Zen hippies, and the Gore warrior race are essentially Klingons, but more so. But while each race is clearly inspired by classic sci-fi, they are nonetheless still unique and interesting enough to make managing them tremendously rewarding. When your first grey employee heals someone in your sickbay, or one of your Turrican scientists makes his first breakthrough in your research lab, you'll find yourself getting attached to them more than you might have expected. 
Soon you'll be scrambling to supply each race's unique food, sleep and entertainment needs, recruiting ZM monks to provide spiritual guidance, and even saving up for the much-vaunted slug apartments, the ultimate residence for the illegionous and notoriously picky Polvakian gem slugs. Sim Hospital fans might think sick people are demanding, but they ain't seen nothing yet. So when you play Startopia, you'll find that your space station is crammed with myriad jokes and references. Red Dwarf doesn't miss out. The robot drones patrolling one of these space-going hunks of metal for rubbish, construction tasks and other trouble are called scutters, while on the other they're called scuzzers. Coincidence? I don't think so. Similarly, other icons of British fiction get to join in. The dialogue of the other recurring character, the notorious trader Arona Dahl, is littered with references to Terry Pratchett's recurring character Cut Me Own Throat Dibbler. The appallingly destructive Scratchers are armoured creatures that burst out of infected aliens if you don't get them to a doctor fast enough, and the Meemaws are as cute and as problematic as the Tribbles that seem to have inspired them. But it's when you beam them up, though, and hear the distinctive Star Trek transporter sound, that you'll know that you're playing a game made by people with a tremendous love for games and for science fiction. There's a lot to love about Startopia, and even for someone with no interest in science fiction, a solid management sim with great visuals and lovely music still has plenty to offer. But for someone who enjoys the work of, say, Douglas Adams, the game is dedicated to him after all, there's a whole nother galaxy of fun to be had. So grab a copy today. I've picked it up from bargain bins on and off over the last decade, but I am pleased to report that good old games now have it available for just a couple of bucks. I'll put a link in the show notes. Before I go, I'd like to make a mention of Muckyfoot Productions, the company that made Startopia. Started by three ex-Bullfrog employees, it's not surprising that it continued the tradition of enormously fun and funny Bullfrog management games that started with Dungeon Keeper, etc. Sadly, Muckyfoot closed soon after Startopia was released, and while some of the developers involved continued to offer support to the community that had grown up around the game, the company never got to reap the benefits of creating such a rich and entertaining title. But while the companies that make these classic games are gone, one look at Kickstarter will show you that the genre is not forgotten, and with the resurging interest in classic management games, now is the time to try out a gem of the genre, Startopia. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time to explore once again the intersection of great games and great science fiction. And this time, I think it should be your call. What would the listeners of Starship Sofa like me to investigate and report on? Should it be Games Workshop's Warhammer 40k universe? Gearbox Software's Gonzo Future Action Series, Borderlands? Or perhaps Valve's Half-Life titles? There's been a stack of Star Wars games, and now even an MMO. Speaking of MMOs, how about EVE Online? StarCraft 1 and 2? There's been a bunch of sci-fi game reboots recently, from XCOM to Deus Ex and Syndicate. The Mass Effect series are Bioware's signature sci-fi franchise, but there are also outliers like the steampunk Rise of Legends, or the little-known classic Lander. Or even further afield, how about Ted Williams' virtual reality novels, The Otherland series, or Ernest Cline's more contemporary title, Ready Player One? If any of these titles grabs your interest, please post a comment in the forum. Let me know how you like your games, and your sci-fi. Our music is by Cheap Shop, from the album Streets of Bass, used with permission. Links to that and everything else I've mentioned in the show notes.
There you go, Simon. Thank you so much. Next up is a two-part short story by Alec Navalali. It is entitled The Boneless One. I'll give you a little heads up about Alec. He is a novelist, freelance writer and the author of The Iron Thief, the first of a trilogy of international thrillers published by Penguin. The second instalment, City of Exiles, was released in December with a concluding novel, Eternal Empire, to follow in 2013. This story that we're about to play came out, the boneless one, came out in analogue science fiction in the November 2011. It was also picked up for the year's best science fiction, 29th annual collection, edited by Gardner Doswas. Short stories to date is, his last one he had was The Voices, which came out in 2012. That was published by Analog Science Fiction. His first one came out in 2004 in verse, and he's got a few in between as well. I put a link on to Alex site, like I say, he's got some new books out there. Go and have a look, please check them out, that'll be fantastic. This story is narrated by Josh Roseman. Josh, as you know... He's just starting to break out into the short story market, getting them published in Asimov's. You know, you can't get better than that as well. He says he's just finishing editing a novel that is actually currently shopping around agents and publishers. And he says, you know, he asked the question in this novel, what happens to all those teenage girls who the only thing standing between humanity and the forces of darkness? That's just fab, Josh. Thank you. Love it. If any publishers or agents listen to Starship Sova, I want to represent it. He says, get in touch with him. He's, and I'll put like a link on to Josh's site as well. And like I say, we've got a story coming by Josh soon. I've got it there recorded, ready to rock and roll as well. So do look out for that. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Boneless One, Part One, by Alec Navalali. One. Before we go on deck, I should make one thing clear, Ray Wiley said. We're nowhere near the Bermuda Triangle. Tripp opened his eyes. He had been sleeping comfortably in a haze of wine and good food, rocked by the minor expansions and contractions of the yacht's hull, and for a moment, looking up at the darkened ceiling, he could not remember where he was. What time is it? Three in the morning. Ray rose from the chair beside the bed. We're six hundred miles north of Antigua. As Tripp sat up, Ray was already heading for the stateroom door. A graying beard, grown over the last year, had softened Ray's famously intense features, but his blue eyes remained focused and bright, and they caught Tripp's attention at once. If nothing else, it was the first time he had ever been awakened by a billionaire. Come on, Ray said. You'll want your notebook. And camera. At the mention of his notebook, Tripp glanced automatically at the desk, where he had left his papers before going to bed. It did not look as if Ray had tried to read his notes, but even if he had, he would have found nothing objectionable. Tripp's private notebook, in which he recorded his real thoughts about the yacht's voyage, was safely tucked into the waistband of his pajamas. Tripp climbed out of bed, pulling on his jeans and parka, glancing at the berths on the opposite bulkhead, he saw that the men with whom he shared the cabin were gone. Did Ellis and Gary? They're on deck, Ray said. Hurry up. You'll understand when we get there. Tripp slid on a pair of deck shoes and slung a camera around his neck. As he followed Ray to the salon, he became aware of a murmur beneath his feet, the barely perceptible vibration of the yacht's engine, trembling in counterpoint to the waves outside. 
Upstairs, the lights in the salon had been turned down. As they headed for the companionway, Trip saw Stavros, the yacht's captain and first engineer, seated at the internal steering station, his broad face underlit by the glowing console. On the deck of the Lancet, the night was cold and windless. Two men in matching parkas were standing in the cockpit, looking into the void of the North Atlantic. One was Ellis Harvey, the yacht's marine biologist, a headlamp illuminating his weathered, intelligent features. The other was Gary Baker, a postdoctoral student in microbiology, his pale face framed by glasses and a tidy goatee. When Ellis saw Ray, he frowned. It was no secret that the two older scientists were not on the best of terms. We're going on a night dive, Ellis said. Do we need a third set of gear? I'll pass, Tripp said. He was not fond of the water. What's this all about? Gary pointed along the center line of the sloop. Dead ahead. You see it? Tripp turned to look. For a long moment he saw nothing but the ocean, visible only where it gave back the yacht's rippling lights. Then, as his eyes adjusted, he noticed a brighter area of water. At first he thought it was an optical illusion, an effort by his brain to insert something of visual interest into an otherwise featureless expanse. It was only the hard line of the stem post, silhouetted against the glow, that finally told him that it was real. Lights. Tripp glanced around at the others. Something is glowing in the water. Ray seemed proud of the sight, as if he had personally conjured up the apparition for Tripp's benefit. Gary saw it a few minutes ago, when he took over the night watch. We're still trying to figure out what it is. It's too widespread to be artificial, Ellis said. It looks like a natural phenomenon. A luminescent microbe, perhaps. Tripp was barely listening. In the absence of landmarks, it was hard to determine the distance of the light, which was faint and bluish-green, but it seemed at least a mile away. It was neither constant nor uniform, but had patches of greater or lesser brightness, which flickered in a regular pattern. Initially, he thought that the twinkling was caused by the motion of the waves, but as they grew closer, he saw that the lights themselves were pulsing in unison. It synchronized. Is that natural? I don't know, Ray said. He grinned broadly. That's what we're here to find out. Tripp heard a note of hunger in the billionaire's voice. For the past two years, he knew, the Lancet, under Ray's funding and guidance, had been using the latest technology to sample the incredible genetic diversity of life in the ocean, with the unspoken goal of finding genes and microbes with commercial potential. So far, the voyage had been relatively uneventful. But if the glow in the distance turned out to be an unknown form of microscopic life, it could prove to be very lucrative indeed. When Tripp tried to ask Ray about this, though, he received only a grunt in response, which was not surprising. It was no secret that Ray was having second thoughts about the article that Tripp was here to write. In the three days since his arrival, Tripp had already noticed a number of conflicts simmering beneath the surface of the voyage, and Ray as if sensing this, had been avoiding him. At this rate, Tripp thought, his week aboard the Lancet would end without so much as an interview. The sloop pressed onward, the foam breaking in tendrils across its prow. Tripp stood between Ray and Ellis, caught in their unfriendly silence, as Gary removed wetsuits and cylinders from a scuba locker, 
securing glow sticks to the tanks with zip ties. Before long, the yacht was at the edge of the illuminated region, the light visible in the water against the hull. When Ray used the cockpit phone to tell Stavros to cut the engines, the vibration beneath the deck ceased at once. As the yacht drifted freely, surrounded on all sides by the glow, Trip got a better look at the light. At close range, it resolved itself into countless discrete nodules of brightness, seemingly without heat, but unmistakably alive. Ellis leaned over the wire railing that encircled the deck. Ray, this is no microbe. Let's get a closer look, then, Ray said. As Trip began taking pictures, the two older men suited up for the dive, then climbed over the railing. As they slid into the water, Trip briefly saw them outlined against the glow, which illuminated them from underneath like a magic lantern. Within seconds, they were gone. Gary was standing beside him. If you like, you could try the observation chamber. Good idea, Trip said, lowering his camera. The chamber was contained in a false nose at the forefront of the yacht, two meters below the waterline. Going over to the entry tube, which was bolted to the stem post, Trip glanced back at Gary, who gave him a nod of encouragement, and climbed inside. It was twenty feet down. When he reached the final rung, he found himself in a tiny room lined with a foam mattress, the ceiling too low to stand. It smelled of mildew and rust. He spread himself prone on the floor, his nose inches from the largest of five portholes, and looked out at the ocean. It took him a while to understand what he was seeing. In the water outside, clusters of glowing particles were passing through the sea. There were dozens of such formations, some drifting at random, others bunching and splaying their radial arms to go sailing serenely past the windows. Trip forgot about his camera, caught up in the strangeness of the sight. At first he felt surrounded by otherworldly creatures, like something out of a dream. Only when one of the shapes drifted close by the nearest porthole, almost pressing itself against the glass, did he finally recognize it for what it was. The sloop was surrounded by hundreds of octopuses. As his eyes grew used to the darkness, he saw that every octopus had two rows of luminous cells running along each of its eight arms. The light from each node, which was bluish-green, was not strong, but taken together, they caused the water to be as brightly lit as a crowded highway on a winter's night. When fully extended, the octopuses were the size of bicycle wheels, their bodies pink, verging on coral. As Trip switched on his camera, gelatinous eyes peered through the water at his own face. He was about to snap a picture when he heard the clang of footsteps overhead. Someone was climbing down the ladder. Mind if I join you? The voice took him by surprise. Turning, he saw a pair of feminine legs enter his field of vision. When the woman had descended all the way, he saw that it was Meg, the ship's stewardess and deckhand. Not at all, Tripp said, unsure of how to react. Meg was trim, but shapely, with short dark hair and a patrician nose. From the moment of their first meeting, she had struck him as the sort of young woman who is perfectly aware of the power that she possesses, as well as the fact that it will not last forever. Among other things, although the relationship was not openly acknowledged, everyone on the yacht knew that Meg spent most of her nights in Ray Wiley's stateroom. I came to see what all the excitement was about, Meg said, 
spreading herself across the mattress pad. Amazing, isn't it? Yes, it is. Trip turned back to the window. They lay side by side, not speaking, as the lights drifted past them in glowing bands. He gradually became aware that Meg's leg was pressing pleasantly against his own. A moment later, a diver appeared in the circle of sea disclosed by the largest porthole. It was Ray. As he passed the observation chamber, he turned toward the window, the beam of his flashlight slicing through the water. Through the mask, it was hard to see his face, but his eyes seemed fixed on theirs. At his side, Trip felt Meg stiffen. Rolling onto her back, she took hold of the nearest rung and went up the ladder without a word. Trip did not move. He remained eye to eye with the diver on the other side of the window, the octopuses forgotten, until Ray finally turned and swam away. The following morning, when Trip went on deck, he found Ray standing in the dive cockpit with Ellis and Gary. An awning had been erected over the aft deck, shielding it from the sun, but it was still hot enough for the men to strip down to shorts and sandals as they took a sample of seawater, a ritual performed once a day, every two hundred miles, as the lancet circled the globe. In the water around the yacht swam countless octopuses, their luminescence muted in the daylight. Ellis leaned over the railing. What's the line in Tennyson? Vast and unnumbered polypi? Unnumbered and enormous polypi, Tripp said, glad to put his liberal education to some use. Winnow with giant arms the slumbering green. Taking a seat, he watched as a hinged arm with a pump on one end was lowered five feet below the surface. After the temperature and salinity had been recorded, fifty gallons of water were pumped into a plastic drum, passing through a series of increasingly fine filters. The process took about an hour. As they waited, Gary engaged in a friendly contest with Kieran, the yacht's first mate, to see who would be the first to catch an octopus. Gary had floated a baited trap out to sea on a cable, while Kieran, tan and muscular, was taking a more active approach, which he claimed to have learned in the Canary Islands. It involved a hooked rod and a red rag tied to a stick, and did not, at first glance, seem especially effective. As Ellis and Ray stowed their equipment, they picked up the thread of what seemed to be an ongoing debate. We need to stay here, Ellis said. If we leave now, we'll be giving up the chance of a lifetime. The chance of your lifetime, not mine, Ray said, rinsing himself off in the cockpit shower. We're already running behind schedule. If we stay here much longer, we won't make it to the Galapagos as planned. Then we need to push back the deadline. This is a new species. Only one other variety of luminescent octopus has ever been described. Take a specimen, then. I've already asked Kieran to put together a couple of tanks. A few specimens won't be enough. Ellis argued. We're seeing extraordinary collective behaviors here. Octopuses aren't supposed to travel in schools, and at this distance from the shore, they live well below the waterline. Something is causing them to appear in groups on the surface. We need to find out why. Ray turned to Trip, the beads of water standing out on his face. Are you getting all this? Ellis thinks that science can only take place in a bathysphere. He can't accept that a new kind of octopus isn't going to change the world. It may not change the world, Tripp said carefully, but it's something that a lot of people would like to see. I agree, Ellis said. If anything, it would enhance the reputation of this project.
Ray shook his head, dislodging a cascade of drops. You're missing the point. In the sample of water we've taken today, we're going to find a thousand new species of microbe, if not more. He turned to Trip. With every sample we analyze, we double the number of genes previously known from all species across the planet. It's the first time that modern sequencing methods have been applied to an entire ecosystem. I don't see how an octopus is any more important than this. It isn't a question of importance, Ellis said impatiently. It's a question of, even now, nobody really knows what the ocean contains, Ray continued, still looking at Trip. Every milliliter of seawater contains a million bacteria and ten million viruses. Until I came along, nobody had tried to analyze the ocean with the same thoroughness that had been applied to the human genome. When we're done, the results will be available to everyone, free of charge, with no strings attached. That, my friends, is what will enhance our reputation, not a glowing octopus. He turned to look at Gary, who was seated on the transom, clutching the cable of his octopus strap. As I see it, there are two approaches to science. You can lunge after something with a rag on a stick, like Kieran, or you can bait a trap and see what floats by. It's less glamorous, maybe, but in the long run, Ray was interrupted by an excited shout. At the other end of the sloop, Kieran had caught an octopus on the end of his hook and was lifting it carefully out of the water. As Kieran dropped the octopus into the bucket at his feet, Tripp saw a handful of arms writhing uselessly in the open air. Ellis turned to Ray. What were you saying about the two approaches to science? Ray forced his face into a grin, then turned to the first mate. Kieran, think you can catch a few more of these monsters? Not a problem, Kieran said, climbing into the cockpit. How many do you want? As many as you can get, Ray said. We're having octopus for dinner tonight. An embarrassed silence ensued. Kieran gave them all an uneasy smile, then headed below. After a pause, Ray turned to Ellis. All right, we'll hold station for one more day. You should be satisfied with this. Fine, Ellis said although he was obviously displeased. I'll do what I can. The two scientists went their separate ways. A few minutes later, when the filtering process was complete, Gary unscrewed a set of steel plates and used tweezers to fish out the filters inside. Each filter, the size of a vinyl record album, had been stained various shades of brown as the microbes were captured in paper of decreasing porousness. I'm sorry you had to see that, Gary said to Tripp sliding the filters into plastic bags. Those two don't always see eye to eye. What about you? Tripp asked, helping him to pack up the morning's sample. Do you think we should stay longer? Gary headed for the companionway. Ray pays my salary, which doesn't make me a disinterested observer. The fact is, I love both of those guys, but Ellis is just as ambitious as Ray is. He's just better at hiding it, that's all. He disappeared down the stairs. As the day wore on, Tripp caught occasional glimpses of Gary in the wet lab across from the salon. Through the laboratory window, Tripp saw him sterilize a pair of shears with a blowtorch and slice each filter in two, one half to be frozen for later analysis, the other to be sequenced aboard the yacht itself. Aside from the time spent gathering each day's water sample, Gary spent most of his time in the lab, dissolving the filters and analyzing the resultant genetic material, which meant that he was the only crew member without a tan. Tripp 
took a seat in the salon, where the captured octopus had been installed in a plastic tank. Since his arrival, he had been struck by the demands being made of the scientific team. Sequencing the genes of all the organisms in a random sample of seawater was an incredibly complicated process, akin to assembling a thousand jumbled jigsaw puzzles. Normally, most of the analysis would have taken place on shore, but Ray, hoping to save time, had insisted that it occur on the sloop itself. Several competing efforts to sequence marine ecosystems were currently underway, and Ray had become obsessed with concluding the project before the bicentennial of Darwin's birth, which was in less than three weeks. Such urgency might have seemed strange, but as Tripp reviewed his notes, he reflected that nothing less than Ray's legacy was at stake. Despite the role that he had famously played in decoding the human genome, Ray remained a controversial figure, known more for his ruthlessness as a businessman than his scientific integrity. Now that money was no longer an issue, he had funded this mission in an attempt to refute his detractors, as well as to make his own case for a Nobel Prize. As a result, he had begun to push his scientific team to show greater process, which, as far as Tripp could tell, had only deepened the divisions within the crew. Dinner that night was quietly tense. Dawn, the ship's cook, an attractive woman with a blonde ponytail, had prepared a ceviche, slowly simmering the octopus to soften it first. Although the flesh was tender, nobody could do more than pick at it, so the crew focused on the vegetable curry instead, which they washed down with plentiful wine and cold water. You can judge a yacht by how the wine flows, Ray said, his eyes red. On the Calypso, Cousteau had a wine tank made of stainless steel. And how many bottles do we have? Two hundred in the hold, Don said, and another fifty or sixty in the fridge. Tripp poured himself another glass. Unlike some yachts, which had separate tables for guests and crew, everyone on the research sloop ate together, although this did nothing to lighten the mood. Ray, he noticed, treated everyone as his servant, even Stavros, who had been the yacht's captain long before the billionaire had acquired it. When Ray asked him condescendingly to tell them the Greek word for octopus, the captain replied, Octopus, of course. But to Hesiod, it was Anostios, or the boneless one. The boneless one gnaws his foot in his fireless house and wretched home. I didn't know we had so many scholars on board, Ray said. He eyed Trip over the rim of his glass. I'm aware, by the way, that I've neglected to give you the interview I promised. Are you free tonight? Trip, who had nearly given up hope of such an invitation, was surprised at the sudden offer. Of course. Maybe after dinner? I need to take care of some business first, but if you want to drop by my cabin at ten, I can give you an hour of my time. Ray's bloodshot eyes flashed between Trip and Meg. Unless you have other plans. Meg rose, abruptly, clearing the dishes and carrying them into the galley. Ray flushed from the wine, did not take his eyes from her face. After dinner, the crew dispersed. Kieran headed up to the deck, joined a moment later by Dawn, ostensibly for the first watch, although a whiff of sweet smoke from the crew's quarters made Trip guess that they had something else in mind. Around the yacht, the octopuses had resumed their nocturnal flickering. When the lights in the salon were turned down, the octopus in the tank started to glow as well. Going into his cabin, 
Tripp began to review his list of questions, glancing out the window at the show of lights. As he prepared, he began to feel strangely nervous. Looking at his hands, he noticed that he had been chewing his fingernails, which was something that he had not done in years. When the time for the interview arrived, Tripp rose from his chair, making sure that he had his notebook, an audio recorder, and went into the hallway. The yacht was silent. Stavros sat in the salon, his back turned, laying out a game of solitaire. None of the other crew members was in sight. Tripp went to the door of Ray's cabin, which was closed, and knocked lightly. Ray? There was no answer. Looking down, Tripp saw a line of light beneath the door. He knocked a second time, and when there was no response, he tried the knob, which turned easily. After a moment's hesitation, Tripp pushed open the door and entered the stateroom. He had only been here once before, on the day that he had boarded the yacht, and had been duly impressed by its luxury. Ray was seated at his workstation, his back to the door. His head was bowed as if he were looking intently at something on the desk. Tripp came forward cautiously, afraid that he was intruding, and gingerly touched Ray's shoulder with his fingertips. Do you still want to talk? In response to the nudge, Ray swiveled around in his chair, although the motion was due solely to momentum. His eyes were open, and his head was tilted at an unnatural angle. A gash had parted the skin of his throat, the blood running down the front of his shirt and pooling on the floor below, where it blended with the burgundy rug. Tripp was not a doctor, and had no first-hand experience of murder, but even at first glance, it was clear that Ray was quite dead. 2. The captain was the first to respond to his shouts of alarm. Stavros appeared in the stateroom door, his calmness oddly reassuring, and stopped. He looked at Tripp, saying nothing, then turned to the body. Going up to the corpse, he placed his fingertips against its throat, almost in a parody of checking for a pulse, and examined the wound, which was clean and deep. After studying the gash for a moment, he shook his head. It's bad luck to have a dead man on board. Tripp stared at the captain, wondering if he was joking. Instead of saying more, Stavros took the body beneath its arms and laid it on the floor, with Tripp doing his best to help. As they moved the body, a fresh stream of blood trickled from its throat swallowed up at once by the plush fibers of the carpet. There was a gasp from the doorway. It was Meg. A second later, Gary appeared, still in his loves and laboratory gown, his face pale with shock. Kieran and Dawn stood behind him, looking over his shoulder at the scene in the cabin. Their eyes were bloodshot. Last of all, Ellis pushed through the knot of bodies, his gaze fixed on the corpse on the ground. My God, Ellis said his voice nearly cracking. Did anyone see what happened? No one replied. Through the windows, the octopus lights continued to flicker. I've been in the salon all night, Stavros said at last. I saw nobody enter or leave. Someone must have been here, Tripp said. Ray didn't cut his own throat. If he did, where's the knife? There was another silence, more suspicious now. Tripp was studying the faces of the others, searching for signs of guilt, when his eye was caught by a trail of blood on the floor. It led from the desk to the far wall, where a door had been set into the bulkhead. Where does this hatch go? The deck, Stavros said. He went to the hatch and opened it, touching only the edge of the knob. Behind the door lay a narrow companionway. He went up, 
followed by Tripp and Kieran, with the others remaining behind. Outside, the air was cool and motionless, the ocean glowing with eerie light. In the dive cockpit, a constellation of blood was visible on the deck. A pool of pink water had collected beneath the showerhead, as if someone had paused to wash his or her hands before moving on. Stavros turned to Kieran. You were supposed to be on watch. You didn't see anything? Kieran looked embarrassed. We were at the prow, looking at the lights, and we were, uh... Yes, I know, Stavros said, making a gesture of disgust. A couple of potheads. They returned to the stateroom. In the cabin, someone had covered the body with a sheet, the crimson petals of blood already starting to soak through. Meg was seated on the bed, eyes wet, with Don's arm around her shoulders. In the corner, Ellis and Gary were talking in low tones. A second later, Ellis turned to the others, as if he had decided to assume control. All right, whoever did this needs to confess. Now. In the long pause that followed, volleys of glances were exchanged, but no one spoke. Eventually, one by one, they began to offer explanations for their whereabouts. It soon became clear that only Kieran and Dawn, who had been smoking up on the far end of the sloop, could verify their stories. While Tripp had gone into his room after dinner, Gary had returned to the lab, and Ellis had been in the observation chamber below decks, taking notes on the octopus school. Stavros had been in the salon, facing away from the stateroom, while Meg had retired to her cabin to read. Ellis turned to Trip. You're the one who found him. What were you doing there? You heard what happened at dinner, Trip said. Ray offered me an interview. Is that what you thought? Ellis gave him a tight smile. I happen to know that Ray was planning to tell you that he was withdrawing permission for the article. He told me so himself. Tripp was astonished by the unspoken implication. Why would he change his mind? Ellis looked at Meg, who was seated on the bed. Who knows what he was thinking? Tripp's face grew red. So what are you saying? He wouldn't give me an interview? So I killed him? There was no response. After another moment, when it became clear that no confessions were forthcoming, they turned, almost with relief, to the business of dealing with the body. Ellis went into his cabin and returned with a medical kit, which he used to tape bags over Ray's hands. When he was done, Stavros wrapped the corpse in a sheet and secured it neatly with nylon cord. Sealing off the stateroom, they carried the body into the galley, where Meg and Don had removed the bottles from the wine refrigerator and laid it snugly inside. As they were closing the galley door, Tripp happened to glance at the rack above the sink and saw that one of the knives was missing. Once the body had been stowed, they returned to the salon to debate their next move. The first decision was easy. The Lancet, like many yachts, had a system of security cameras that was rarely used and which they now agreed to turn on. There was also some discussion of sleeping arrangements. In the end, it was decided that the women would share one of the staterooms, Trip, Ellis, and Gary the other, and that the captain and first mate would each take a cabin for themselves. Finally, they raised the issue of the voyage itself. There's no way out of it, Stavros said. We need to go back. If we make full speed, we can be at Antigua and Barbuda in three days. We would have been done in a few more weeks, Gary said bitterly. He looked around at the others. I know we don't have much of a choice, but after all this is done, I'm coming back to finish the project. No one spoke. 
In the tank, the octopus wound and unwound its arms, glowing softly like an emblem of death from a medieval painting. They all spent a restless night. The following morning, Trip was in the salon when he felt a soothing vibration well up through the floor. The engine had started. He was smiling at Meg and Dawn, who seemed equally relieved that they were on their way, when an alarm sounded from the cockpit. A second later, the wailing ceased, and the engine died as well. Trip went up to the deck, where he found Stavros crouching over the hatch of the engine room, biting his lower lip. A sharp tang of scorched metal wafted up from the engine. Overheated, Stavros said tersely, in response to Tripp's question. We're taking care of it. Kieran, who was examining the engine, stuck his head and shoulders out of the darkened rectangle, a smudge of grease on his face. It's the alternator and pump. The belt's been torn to shreds. I'll need to replace it. How long will that take? Tripp asked, unsettled by the prospect of an engine failure. Although the sloop was perfectly capable of proceeding under sail, the last few days had been windless, and they were weeks away from shore. Kieran wiped away the grease. A couple of hours. We'll need to hold station here. Word of their situation spread quickly. After learning what had happened, Ellis announced that he would spend the morning trying to capture a few more octopuses. While examining the octopus that had been caught the day before, he had noticed that one of its arms was missing, apparently severed. We need a perfect specimen, Ellis said, as if challenging the others to contradict him. If we're stuck here anyway, we might as well make the most of it. When no one objected, Ellis and Gary set to work. During the night, the yacht had drifted away from the octopus school, so they took the boat tender. Tripp accepted an invitation to come along glad for an excuse to get away from the yacht, and Meg agreed to join them as well. They roared off in the tender, the water rising around them in a needle-like spray. The motor was too loud for conversation, but Trip kept a close watch on Meg, who had dark circles under her eyes. When the tender neared the octopus school, which was visible in faint red patches through the water, Ellis cut the engine. Gary and I will dive together. You two can wait here. Donning their equipment, the two scientists climbed out onto the inflatable keel and slid overboard. Tripp watched them descend, the sun beating down on the back of his neck, then turned to Meg. How are you doing? I'll be all right, Meg said. The brim of her hat left her face in shadow, but her voice, he noticed, was steady. As they waited for the others to return, Meg began to take measurements of the water's temperature and salinity with Tripp helping as best he could. As the minutes ticked by, he tried to steer the conversation toward the other members of the crew. Ray didn't seem like a guy who was easy to work with. Meg looked back at the yacht, which was holding station 700 yards away. He was used to being right all the time. Ellis couldn't deal with it. He also thought that he was going to have the chance to conduct his own research, but Ray worked him pretty hard. Ellis seems to think that the octopus school is his last chance for a major discovery. Yes, I know. Meg hesitated, as if there were something else that she wanted to say. There was a lot that Ellis didn't understand. Ray drank too much, and sometimes, when we were alone, he would tell me things. Tripp sensed that she was on the verge of revealing something important. What is it? Ray was withholding some of the team's discoveries.
You know how he insisted that Gary process the samples on board the yacht? It was so he could screen the results for genes with commercial potential. If you can find a microbe that makes it easier to produce ethanol, for example, or a luminous microbe, like the one he was hoping to find the other night, it would be worth millions. But the whole point of this project was to make the data freely available, Tripp said. Every gene was going to be made public, right? That's what Ray claimed. It's what allowed him to recruit people like Gary. If you ask Gary why he joined the project, he'll say it was because he believed that genetic research should be as open as possible. But Ray was always driven by profit. He wasn't about to change his ways. Tripp could feel the elements of a story assembling themselves in his head. You seem to know a lot about science. I spent a year in medical school before I dropped out. I couldn't stand the dissections. Meg glanced back at the sloop, which looked like a scale model in the sunlight. I decided a long time ago that I was going to devote my life to pleasure, not death. For a while, I thought that marrying a rich man was the answer. That's why I was involved with Ray. Don't pretend you didn't know. Tripp went for the diplomatic response. I had some idea of what was going on. You and everyone else. I don't mind. I knew he wasn't going to marry me. Meg turned back to Tripp. Maybe it's better this way. If he'd held back results for commercial reasons, it would have come out sooner or later. Now, instead, he gets to be a martyr. In a way, I'm glad he's dead. Tripp tried to cut the tension. You probably don't want me writing about this, then. Meg didn't respond. Something in her unsmiling face, which was still in shadow, sent a prickle of nervousness down his spine. Before either of them could speak again, Gary's gloved hand emerged from the sea, clutching an octopus, which had wound itself around his upper arm. Ellis surfaced a second later, wetsuit glistening, holding an octopus of his own. Looks like they've got their prizes, Meg said. She glanced at Tripp's hands. You've been biting your nails. Are you nervous? When she looked back up at him, Tripp held her gaze. Not any more than you are. They helped Gary and Ellis onto the tender. As they headed back, the octopuses, each in its own bucket, writhed at their feet, curling into defensive balls whenever they were touched. Meg did not speak to Tripp again. When they returned to the sloop, it was already late in the afternoon. Tripp was climbing into the dive cockpit when he heard shouts. At the entrance to the engine room, Stavros and Kieran were yelling at each other, and the captain had bitten his own lip out of agitation. You stupid malaka, Stavros said. If we wind up stranded here, it's all your fault. Kieran was equally furious. Penchod, I'm not the one who sabotaged the engine. Sabotage? Tripp looked between the two men. What are you talking about? It's the fan belt, Kieran said. I tried to replace it, but it snapped whenever the engine engaged. When I looked closer, I found out why. The ball bearings in the pulley are damaged, and the package of extra bearings is missing from my spare parts kit. I took an inventory just last week, and it was definitely there, which means that somebody stole it. What about the engine? Tripp asked. You really think that it was sabotaged? Stavros nodded, the blood shining on his lip. Whoever did it will answer to me. In any case, we'll find a workaround, Kieran said, speaking more calmly than before. I can cannibalize parts from another pulley, but it means we won't be leaving until tomorrow at the earliest. The announcement cast a pall over the rest of the day, 
As Stavros and Kieran worked on the engine, Gary prepared a tank for the octopus he had caught, installing it next to the first one, while Ellis took his own specimen into the lab for closer examination. The two octopuses in the salon took no visible interest in each other, glowing gently in their separate containers as evening fell. When it was time for dinner, Gary proposed that they eat on deck, which would put some distance between themselves and the body in the galley. Outside, the lights in the water were brighter than ever. As they ate around a folding table, bundled up in parkas and gloves, Gary raised the question that they had all been avoiding. When this is over, how many of you are coming back? When no one answered, Gary took a sip from his water glass. I know it's hard to talk about this, but back on shore, we aren't going to have another quiet moment. We need to discuss this now. We all know that you want to respect Ray's wishes, Stavros finally said, a red scab on his lower lip. As for me, I go with the Lancet. Her destination makes no difference to me. Or me, Kieran said. Not everyone here feels the same loyalty to Ray that you do. This isn't about loyalty, Gary said. It's about seeing that important work isn't lost. We've made significant discoveries here, and we need to make sure that they're released to the public. Tripp glanced at Meg, who did not look back. I've only been here for a few days, but I know something about situations like this, Tripp said, not sure if his opinion counted. Your first obligation is to the living. Ellis grunted. Personally, if Ray were able to speak his mind, I don't think he'd care either way. Now that he's dead, he can't profit from any of it. They don't award the Nobel Prize posthumously. After a prolonged silence, Dawn, who had tucked her hair up into a baseball cap, tried to change the subject. I've been watching these octopus lights for days now, and I have no idea what they mean. What are they? Ellis shifted easily into professorial mode. It could be a way of coordinating group activities, like mating, or some kind of hunting strategy. Most people don't appreciate how intelligent octopuses are. They have big brains with folded lobes, the largest of any invertebrate, and show signs of memory and learning. He looked thoughtfully at the lights. Of course, they only live for three or four years. If they had a longer lifespan, who knows what they might be capable of doing? The crew fell into silence. As they looked out at the water, Kieran played with his cigarette lighter, its nervous flame mirroring the lights in the sea, which seemed unfathomably ancient. Trip, thinking of corpse lights in a graveyard, was reminded of a passage from Coleridge. They moved in tracks of shining white, and when they reared, the elfish light fell off in hoary flakes. After a moment, Meg cleared the table and took the dishes below. The others were talking and drinking, the mood finally beginning to lighten, when they heard a scream and a crash from the salon. In an instant, they were out of their chairs. They found Meg standing in the salon, a pile of broken dishes at her feet. She was staring at the two tanks that had been set up in one corner. Her face had lost most of its color. Look, Meg said, pointing toward the tanks with a trembling finger. Look at this. Tripp followed her gesture with his eyes. The last time he had bothered to look, each of the tanks had held a single octopus. Now the nearest tank was empty, and in the other, the water was clouded by a blue fog. When the haze cleared, he felt a wave of nausea. One of the octopuses had killed the other. The survivor's color had deepened to crimson, while the remains of its neighbor were shriveled and gray, 
Billows of octopus blood had polluted the water, and a foamy scum had gathered on the surface. A second later, Tripp realized what else was happening and felt a cold hand take hold of his insides. The surviving octopus was eating its companion. As he watched, the octopus used its beak to amputate one of its victim's arms at the base. Wrapping its mouth around the severed arm, it devoured it, the arm disappearing inch by inch into its chitinous maw. The octopus twitched, its arms jerking in brief convulsions as it swallowed its fierce meal, its eyes hooded and glazed. Ellis looked accusingly at the others. Who put the octopuses into the same tank? I don't think anyone did this, Stavros said. It must have escaped on its own. That's impossible, Kieran said. He went over to the empty tank. Both tanks had been made from plastic buckets, the lids secured so that a narrow gap remained above the rim, allowing air to circulate. The gap, which was less than an inch wide, seemed too small for an octopus to pass through. As the surviving octopus finished eating one arm and began to snip off another, it occurred to Trip that there was an easy way to resolve the question. The security cameras. We switched them on last night. Let's take a look, Ellis said. Going into the library, he returned a minute later with a videotape. A television was mounted to one wall of the salon. Ellis inserted the tape into the video player and pressed the rewind button. As he did, Tripp noticed that his knuckles were badly bruised. Before he could ask about this, an image of the salon appeared on the television set. The videotape opened with footage that had been taken only a few moments ago of the entire crew standing around the tanks. As the tape rewound, the crew went up the steps, walking backwards, except for Meg, who stayed behind. The broken dishes on the floor flew back into her arms and reassembled themselves, and then she, too, was gone. The tanks alone remained on screen. As the video rolled back, the predatory octopus appeared to regurgitate its victim's arms and refasten them. An instant later, both octopuses were alive, struggling in the tank, and then... I don't believe it, Tripp said, his eyes wide. Have you ever seen anything like this? Ellis remained silent, although he did not look away from the screen. He rewound the tape to the point where the octopuses were back in their separate tanks, then allowed the action to play out normally. For a few seconds, the octopuses floated in their tanks as before. Then the nearest octopus, one of the specimens that Ellis and Gary had captured earlier that day, extended one arm after another to the rim of its own bucket, until the tips of four arms protruded slightly through the narrow gap. Nothing else happened for a long moment, and then the octopus began to squeeze its entire body through. Watching it was like witnessing a baffling optical illusion. First one arm was threaded through the gap and down the outside of the tank. Three other arms followed. The octopus flattened itself, the edge of its mantle passing through, followed by its head, which grew pancaked, like a balloon that was only halfway inflated, as the octopus pulled itself the rest of the way out. Then it was on the countertop and slithering toward the other tank. The octopus moved quickly, gathering and splaying its arms as it crawled across the counter. Its color deepened from pink to red. As it approached, the second octopus, still inside its tank, grew pale, its normally smooth skin becoming rough and pebbled. When the first octopus reached the tank, it hooked the end of one arm over the rim, 
compressing its body until it was flat enough to slip through the gap, which was narrower than a letterbox. Within seconds, it had entered the second tank. The struggle did not last for long. There was an entanglement of arms and beaks, the water growing blue with blood. Trip was unable to see how one octopus killed the other, but the thought of what was happening there made the hairs stand up on the back of his neck. In less than a minute, it was over, and one octopus lay dead at the bottom of the tank. The survivor drifted in the bloody water, its arms coiling and uncoiling. Then, inevitably, it began to feed. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Alex. Alex, thank you so much for that. What we'll do, we'll play as, like I say, next week, the final and concluding part of The Boneless One. Look out for that. So next up is a little interview I carried out a couple of days ago with Gareth Powell. Gareth has wrote a few stories and a few novels, or a couple of novels as well. But he's just on the brink of, I think it's the 18th of December, it gets released in the, the USA, Akak Macaque. And I just want to have a little chat with Gareth about this fantastic novel that's just about to hit everywhere. Well, I'm joined by, I'm very proud to say, Gareth Powell. Now, Gareth, there is a load of buzz going around at the moment with this new, you've got a new novel out there, and I'm just seeing it everywhere. So I don't know who's, who, I'm guessing it might be you who's the marketing manager there, but whoever it is or whoever's doing it has got has done a really good job. Gareth, lovely to have you on Starship Sofa. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Now, we've had you on before there, and we've normally kind of play a little short story off you, and hopefully, because I've just been having a look, Gareth, on the, the science you know, science fiction internet database, because I tried for one, but we haven't somehow managed to get that pulled off yet. But I'm sure, looking back at your history there and your short story, there's a few short stories you've got there, so we'll try and sneak another one off you. But really, what I want to do is talk about this new novel that's kind of you've just had released there for December, which, like I said before there, it just seems to be like on every website, everyone's talking about it, which I think is a crack and, you know, a bit of promotion there. Is, well, tell, first of all, tell us the title of it, because the title alone is, you know, setting kind of everyone alight. Uh, well, the title is named after a short story I wrote in, back in 2006, 2007. It's Akak Macaque. <laughs> just honestly, Gareth, man, that is itself, you know what I mean? And like you say, the cover has got like this chimpanzee smoking a cigar with zeppelins in it there, and it looks like it's in the Eiffel Towers in the background. You couldn't get a better idea for a story, man, Gareth. What a, it looks like you've hit the nail on the head. Tell us a little bit then about the plot. Um, the plot is, it's basically, it's a mixture of a noir detective story set in an alternate London and Paris, um, mixed in with a kind of retelling of the Frankenstein myth with a human-sized, sweary, smoky monkey. (laughs) Did you, you know when you try to sell this, did you write this novel first, Gareth, without selling it, or did you give someone an elevator pitch and says, listen, I've got this idea, right? But it's the protagonist, a monkey that smokes cigars. How did you go about, did you write it first or did you sell it? Uh, I actually sold it first. Um, I, uh, after I wrote the recollection for Solaris and uh, we were discussing a follow-up and they asked me what I wanted to write. And I, I sort of, I wanted to write a detective story for quite a while, but I also... I'd written this short story about the monkey um, and he just wouldn't leave me alone. 
and I, I kept thinking I should do something with that monkey. And uh, I, I sort of mashed the two together and it came out, they fitted like a jigsaw fitting together and it suddenly it all made sense. And I thought, yeah, so I wrote, I sort of sat down one evening and I battered out a sort of five page outline and I looked at it and thought, Jesus, that's the most batshit crazy thing. <laughs> and I sent it off to Solaris. I think uh, I think they wanted to see the first three chapters as well. Um, I can't remember if they did or not. But anyway, anyway, I sent it off to them, and I think their their response was, "Yeah, that's pretty crazy as well, but we're going to go for it." So, well, I think ooh. I think that's what's making everyone kind of you know like see it's on every website and all sorts where you kind of look over, and I think that's what it is. It's this craziness, this idea. And the cover, and now I'm not too sure who's did the cover, but the cover itself looks spectacular. Uh, the cover was done by a guy called Jake Murray, who's uh, um, done me absolutely proud. I couldn't possibly ask for a better book cover in the world. It's uh, the kind of cover that just leaps off shelves at you. And uh, it, there's even a, they've repeated the picture on the spine as well. So if you walk into Waterstones, there's these, uh, this monkey covered in um, bullet belts and grenades and... Uh, uh, a Snoopy hat and flying goggles smoking a cigar looking out at you. And it's, uh, but I, I think as well that the, the title is so much fun to say as well. It's, it's, it's just kind of four syllables that stick in your head and you can't get rid of them. So is, is that Ak Ak Makak, is that the name of the monkey, the protagonist, and is the monkey the protagonist of the story? He's one of the protagonists. There's two, two main protagonists. There's the monkey. Actually, there's three main protagonists. There's the monkey, there's the Prince of Wales, and um, there's uh, a lady called Victoria Valois, who's a, an ex French ex journalist um, who's come to London to find out who's murdered her husband. So it's, uh, it's those three strands working through the plot. Is. I'm trying to, like, in the nicest possible way, Gareth, is there any, was there any kind of research for this story? Or was it just basically, you know, you sat down, you ha- you've had these characters, or, you know, this idea and the, the monkey from a short story. Was it just, like, let your mind wander, or was there quite a bit of research going into this story? There was a bit of research going into the story. I wouldn't claim to be a primatologist or anything, but I wanted to, I wanted to make the monkey more than just a guy in a monkey suit. I wanted him to kind of feel a bit like a monkey in a in a human in human clothes. So I tried to do a bit of research, kind of uh, just behaviours like uh, so. For instance, um, eye contact is is a physical challenge to a fight. So you know, I have to work that in that he can't people can't look him in the eye, um, and you know, I make sure he runs around on all fours and he you know he does primate things like he wants to. He, he's in a fight with some. Uh, some Nazis, and he, he wants to fling, <laughs> fl- fling shit at them, he, you know, and he, he screeches. So I tried, I tried to make him more than a man in a monkey suit. I tried to make him a proper monkey. Um, I also did research into, you know, I looked at every picture of a Spitfire cockpit I could find. I, I um, found somebody whose father flew Spitfire, so I sent him a load of questions like, is it noisy, how cold is it, all things like that. So I got an eye, a feel for what it's like, you know, you know a Spitfire cockpit, and um, I had to do the fact it's set in an alternate world where England and France merged in the 1950s, is I had to do some research like, like what would the full repercussions of that be? So, because um, France really requested that to happen in the 50s, and the English turned them down. 
And I was thinking, well, if it had gone ahead, um, then a few years later, the French wouldn't have signed the treaties with uh, Germany when laid the foundation for the EU as it is now. And the power balance in Europe would probably be more based in London and Paris than rather than Paris and Berlin. So that had implications in itself as well to the, the outcome of the Cold War and the economic picture of the world as it is now, you know, from the Suez crisis onwards. So there was a lot more research there than maybe is apparent in, in the book. But uh, I think I just put enough in to, to give it some verisimilitude. Was it enjoyable to write this story? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, it's always work, but um, the, the, the scenes with the monkey wrote themselves. He's just a joy to write because, oh, you know, I just he just has to go in there and be as objectionable as he can. And that, that was great. It, you know, I, I get to swear, let my hair down, throw things at the furniture. Brilliant. Um, whereas the other characters, you know, they're human, they, have, they interact, they have to have believable relationships. He just goes in there and blows stuff up. That's what I was going to ask you about, you know, writing this story or this novel. You know, this one, this this monkey. Is, am I right in thinking, is this monkey called Akak Makak or not? He is, yes. Right. Is is he, you know, has he got his own, when you're writing him, and I know that's um, the obvious question is, but his own identity, was it easy to write a monkey as the protagonist? Um, yeah, because he's, he's sort of, um, he, he's sort of Mr. Hyde to my Dr. Jekyll, really. He's, you know, you just let all your in, inhibitions and, and want, you know, you want to swear at the world, smoke cigars, shoot things and throw excrement around. He's, you know, you just let, let your inner self off the leash and let, there he is. Well, it's funny because I've always, I've always, last time I interviewed you, Gareth, I always thought G Gareth comes over as a very calm, collective guy, you know, like very, you know, nothing kind of phases you there. You know, if come the apocalypse, I'd want you by my side just to keep us <laughs> calm, where, because I'm up and down flighty as anything. And it's quite nice to know you probably are a little bit like that, but you can just throw everything at this character and get this character to do all your kind of cruel intentions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, um, he was in 2000 AD this month as well in the, the Christmas special bumper issue. There's a five five page prequel that I wrote to to the novel, just sort of introducing the character as a comic strip because he's such a visual character. You know, who doesn't want to see a monkey jumping out of a burning Spitfire? So. <laughs> Well, that just gets me cracked, especially when you, you said there before as well. Oh, well, there's, there's Nazis as well. You know, just throw everything into the mix there. That just sounds fantastic. There are Nazis, but they're Nazi ninjas. There's um, tripod war machines, steam-powered. There's uh, evil robots, mad scientists, uh, the, the lot of the zeppelins, everything. There's even a woman with half a brain and her dead husband living in the other side of her head. So it's just, yeah, I just threw in everything that I thought, if I was 10 years old, <laughs> what would I like to see in this? I've got Spitfires fighting steam-driven Martian war machines. I've got tanks. I've got everything, everything. So did you, did you say that? Was I right in thinking you said Solaris has took this on? Yes, yes. Solaris have published it. They've been, they've been uh, very supportive. I think they're they're as excited as I am about well, it. Well, yes, I think a big 
round of applause. Whoever took that first, you know, bit of like that draft of yours, that five page draft, must need a pat on the back to like even, you know, like go ahead with this. But that's fantastic. Can we get it then, Gareth, in the UK? Because this is always making me bugbear. You know, you interview people there and you can never get these stories. Can we get it on the Kindle in the UK? Yes. Um, the publication date in the UK for the paperback is the 3rd of January and the uh, Kindle version will be available at the same time. Right. So when is it out there now in the US or is it just these? Because I heard it was it was out for December. It comes out in the US on the 18th, the mass market paperback, which is slightly smaller than the UK one, but slightly fatter. Uh, it's just a different format, but it comes out on the 18th in uh, the States. Um, just because of, I'm, I'm not sure why, but just because of some logistics and, and publishing schedules and things. Um, it's not because I like America more than England or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, it will be available on Kindle straight after Christmas. So you get your book tokens, your Amazon vouchers. You know, Fantastic. And is this like a standalone book and that's it, you know, Akak's, it's, that's it, it finished? Or has it got legs? You know, has this protagonist got legs and we'll see him again? Oh, funny you to ask, because yesterday, um, Solaris commissioned a sequel. Oh, never. Go on. (laughs) Which um, is going to be called Hive Monkey, um, as in Beehive. And uh, it's due for delivery um, in June this year, and we'll see the light of day publication-wise about this time next year. So it'll be 12 months after the first one. And I'll tell you what I've, I've noticed as well, Gareth, which is brilliant, fantastic news. Has, you know, whoever, like you say, behind this marketing thing, or is, is this all down to you? Have I seen, am I right in thinking that Akak Macaque's got its own, or has got his own Facebook page and, you know, thing, things like that, you know, social media side of things? Yeah, well, first of all, all credit to uh, Michael Mulcher and the Solaris um, public. Uh, publicity team because they they've done me proud putting that you know they they put a huge advert in 2008 and got the, the strip in there and you know they really helped promote it and and send send out advanced copies all over the place so they've done an excellent job um i also i as I say as you said i set up a facebook page just for people who like the book can can like the page and then be kept up to date usually the page is just full of clips too funny monkey things on YouTube. Um, but I did make a mistake by giving the monkey his own Twitter feed as well. <laughs> because, because now he's on Twitter and he's every bit as objectionable and annoying as he is in the book. Only he's loose on the world. And he's got about nearly, he's got just over 700 followers at the moment. I'm not sure how many of them realize, even though it says fictional character, in, on his uh, biography, I'm, uh, some people are taking him very seriously. See, I, um, I just honestly, Gareth, just run with that. Run with this character as much as you can because I think, honestly, you've hit some sort of little kind of vein there of like oil gold dust, do you know what I mean? And it's just like, because as soon as I've seen it, do you know what I mean? I've seen the cover first and there's like straight away the cover, then the title, and then you kind of get a perception of what this is going to be about. And, you know, I was just honestly like blown away, excited for the thing coming out. Then I realized, Oh, this is Gareth. You look honestly, because I was like led down this lane, and you're like this Akak Macak. Because I'm sure, like, see on Twitter, he's got hundreds of followers. You know what I'm thinking? What? 
this is Gareth, isn't it? Is this what? So just good on you to kind of, I just think it's been a total success with the kind of, you know, that, that publishing side of it, you know, and, and like we've just heard there to get um, Solaris's going, you know, good on them to get, you know, to commission you to write another one, you know, and like you say, that's fantastic. Yeah, all credit to them. And uh, I, I do have secret squirreled away plans for, for possibly further books after that. So we'll have to see how things pan out. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, he's taken on very much a life of his own. He's, uh, you know, pe- people contact me on Twitter to tell me what the monkey's been saying. <laughs> um, as if I, uh, you know, because obviously I don't know, um, even though I live with him. And there's, um, there, there, there are some ladies, I have to tell you, Tony, there are some ladies who, who, who are quite attracted to a, a <gasps> flying seat. The and nerve of them! Yeah, there's been there's been there's been some flirting going on that I don't, don't wholly approve of. So, <laughs> oh, that's just, honestly, Gareth, you've just made my December there because it's just like you see, it's just a, a you know a nice bit of fun, and then like you see, this this book's coming out. Where you know, if I when I want to link to it, Gareth, on the website there, where's the best place? Like, see, it's not coming out just yet. I do, I don't know. Well, this hopefully this show will go out on Wednesday. This Wednesday coming. Is it just probably best to link to your website or link to an, like a pre-order Amazon? Just whatever you think. Um, well, if, if you uh, on my website, there's a, um, there's a tab called Books, and it's listed under there. So if you click on it under there, it's got links to all the different places it's available in the in the states and uh, and over here. So that's probably the best place in terms of, of links to everywhere for everybody. So with the second one then, Gareth, is, and you've, like you see, you've just had the, the kind of yesterday, which is honestly well done, great news for that. You know, it's always nice to know that. Is this now, is this your full-time job now, Gareth, or is this still like a, a hobby? Um, I, I still work part-time. Um, I'm going to be working one, one day a week um, just in, in uh, marketing and PR for a disabled children's charity. Um, I don't know how much longer that will continue, but, uh, you know, it's just uh, it just tops up the, the income and so at least we can count on something from day to day because obviously writing is a, a, a bit of a roller coaster financially. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm earning almost you know, pretty much the same from my uh, from my writing as I am from from uh, doing day jobbery and freelance work, so yeah, it's kind of it, it's getting there, and uh, you know, hopefully sooner or later. Fantastic news! And will there still be the, the short stories come from you as well? I hope so. I haven't written a short story for a long time because um, I sort of had had a run of novels, so um, had the recollection, um, and then Akak McCarrick, and then the sequel coming up, and in between, I've been. Uh, there's another novel I'm writing in the background as well. So um, I haven't had, you know, just haven't had time to sit down. And, and it seems every idea I get seems to be about ninety thousand words long, as opposed to <laughs> five thousand at the moment. But you know, I've, I've got a. Um, I had a first collection in two thousand and eight of short stories, The Last Reef, um, which did very well. I had a brilliant reception. I couldn't have asked for better reception for a short story collection. And I've got. Um, enough published stories that I've had since then to, to form another another collection as well. So that's that's waiting in the wings, and hopefully that'll see the light of day someday. Um, but I've I've had a few short stories dotted around in, in uh, I think there was there was one last year in Solaris 1.5, the ebook anthology, 
Um, and I had one in the Collinthology from Wizard's Tower as well. Um, so there's, there's been a couple coming out here and there, but uh, yeah, I kind of slowed down on the on the short stuff to concentrate on the uh, the long stuff. So. No, no, that's uh, good on you. You know, Gareth, where would I? You know, if I was going to place you in the genre, where would I? Where would I stick you? Or do you just are you skipping all over the place at the minute? Well, um, <laughs> these questions aren't as easy as you think. Yeah, all right, totally. yeah, no, no, there's. Well, it's funny enough, nearly all my short stories are near-future, set-on-Earth um, stories. Then I wrote two space opera novels, and now I've written a monkey-punk novel. So, <laughs> you know, who knows? I'm, you know, I'll, have, uh, I'll have two space operas and, and two uh, sort of old history monkey novels. So um, I, I don't know where to put that. You could class that as kind of proto-steampunk, diesel-punk, noir Old history, cyberpunk. Yeah, honestly, I think things, so. Gareth, just stick with monkey punk. I think that's yes, that's yes, that just got that's your own genre there. You kind of dig that seam there. That that's fantastic. Listen, Gareth, thank you so much for coming on. I know it's short notices. I just kind of contacted you. I think it was yesterday to to come on to have a little chat. But honestly, good luck with this. I just think it's fantastic. It's just it's getting me all excited. You know what I mean? I'll certainly get this a copy of this when it comes out. It's just fantastic, Gareth. Thank you so much for coming on board, Star. Over. Thank you, Tony. Anytime, Mike. There you go. There is a link to Gareth's site. Like I said, this book is just going to be fantastic. Gareth, honestly, you're a star. Thank you so much. Next up is our very own Diane Severson. Diane! And welcome to Poetry Planet. I'm your guide, Diane Severson. Today, we'll be visiting Contestville. The Science Fiction Poetry Association, or the SFPA, recently held a contest, and today you'll hear the winners and the runners-up in each category. More about them shortly. As a member of the SFPA, I'm a bit of the odd one out, being someone who doesn't actually identify as a poet. In fact, I've never written a poem in my life, not even song lyrics which some people don't actually consider poetry, but I digress. Anyway, the powers that be in the association decided to sponsor a contest, but they needed someone to coordinate and organize it. That's where I come in. It was decided rather quickly that while I have no administrative experience whatsoever, I should be the one to coordinate this year's contest. I offered to do a podcast of the winning and placing poems, and Tony agreed to run it on Starship Sofa. So, here we are. Thanks, Tony. The contest awarded prizes for poems in three length categories. Long, or poems over 50 lines. Short, for those between 11 and 49 lines. And Dwarf, for the short, short poems of 10 lines and under. In addition, there was a special prize for the best poem by a non-member. By giving the last prize, the SFPA hoped to spread the word about the association and naturally to attract new members. Prizes included cash for the winning poems, membership for the authors of the winning poems, books and publications by the SFPA and its members, and publication of the poems on the SFPA website. You can see the full details there. And now I present Contestville's most prominent inhabitants, Stephen Gordon, M.D., won the dwarf form category for his poem Lilith. 
SFPA member Noel Sloboda was runner-up with his poem, Dinosaur Heart. In the short-form category, we had Kathy Bryant from the UK as runner-up with Calculated, the winning poem, Cold, coming to us from Damien Cowger. In the long-form category, we had a tie for second place, Bryant O'Hara's The Music Is Always On and Jade Sylvan's Rocket Man Pantoum. The winning long-form poem and the winner of the best poem by a NAM member sprung from the mind of Daryl Lindsay and is entitled The Fugitive. On with the poetry. Noel Sloboda is the author of the poetry collection Shell Games, as well as several chapbooks. He has also published a book about Edith Wharton and Gertrude Stein. Sloboda teaches at Penn State York and serves as dramaturg for the Harrisburg Shakespeare Festival. His forthcoming poetry collection, Our Rarer Monsters, will feature original art by Mark Snyder. Catch a glimpse on the Tumblr website. Dinosaur Heart by Noel Sloboda After the transplant, my life was saved, but my blood ran cold. My pupils turned to slivers of night. In darkness, I heard echoes of lost brethren calling from the pits, asking me to fill the belly of time with something more than shadows. Noel says Dinosaur Heart is part of a series of transplant poems on which I've been recently working. I am interested in ways in which we connect with the world and its creatures, past and present. In some sense, I think most of us have a little dinosaur inside, secreted away somewhere. In the poem, I thought I'd push this possibility and tease out some of the darker implications. Stephen Wittenberg Gordon received his BA from Amherst College and his MD from Albany Medical College. He credits his romantic Shakespearean sonnets and other love poems with his luck in wooing, winning, and keeping his wife, a lady otherwise clearly out of his league. In the past year, he has been experimenting with speculative poetry, mainly fantasy and horror. Lilith is his first work of short fiction to be published in a professional market. Dr. Gordon resides in Kansas with his wife, their two children, and a poorly trained Airedale Terrier. He continues to practice medicine on a part-time basis. Visit him at his blog. Lilith by Stephen Wittenberg Gordon I was created to serve as consort for the first man. But who was he to lord it over me, his equal in every way? And so I parted from him forever, and good riddance. Then the Lord fashioned another, submissive mate for the man. She bore him naked, weak, helpless children. He can have them. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the creatures of the deep, I shall take for mates, and my children will be strong. All manner of demons and monsters will be my legacy, and they shall be a terror to the children of man, haunting their dreams, chilling their blood, and feasting on their souls. Stephen says this about the origins of the poem. 
I first learned of the mythology of Lilith several years ago from a rabbi who was giving a lecture on the hidden messages in the book of Genesis. Lilith was created by God to be Adam's wife separately from and as an equal to Adam. Adam expected Lilith to submit to him, a kind way of saying that she would serve him sexually, probably in an inferior position. But she refused. Incensed and probably humiliated, Adam cried out to God and asked for a new mate. God obliged by creating Eve. Lilith was punished by God for her defiance by having to leave Eden and having one hundred of her children killed every day, forever. The myth of Lilith has haunted me from the day that I learned it and raised many questions in my mind. Who are or were Lilith's children? How could she be or have been so prolific? What became of Lilith afterwards? And, most importantly, who wronged whom in the lover's quarrel between her and Adam? As followers of my yet-to-be-published work set in my fantasy world of Eretz know, Lilith is the antagonist behind the antagonist in that world, the queen of demons, the very personification of evil, chaos, and destruction. She hates all of creation with a venom. The poem, however, depicts Lilith in a different light, gives her a somewhat sympathetic backstory, if you will, hopefully making the ultimate villain a little bit of an anti-hero. Kathy Bryant lives in Manchester, UK, and performs her poetry all over the country. Her short stories and poems have been published in every continent except Antarctica, and in 2012 she won four prizes. Her collection contains strong language and scenes of a sexual nature, was published recently and can be purchased from Amazon.co.uk or any good bookshop. Find out more at her website. Calculated by Kathy Bryant Everyone takes her measure as Candela enters the room, her dress a nebula, airy with valances. Lady Calorie Langley frowns, mutters behind her fan to her loyal slyke. Candela's jewels are breathtaking, the bracelet of twinkling amperes, and at her throat a huge, flawless erg. At her side is Petrie Faraday, Count of Volt, drinking Tola and admiring the luster of the coulombs in his beloved's hair. They try to measure in the dance, a rundlet, an Edison, a choir. He asks after her pet peekamoles, mips, and muchkin, and she laughs. The anarchist Smoot looks on in jealous frustration. He sees the sea miles in her eyes, knows she will never smile at him. Supper is laid on the periodic table, centipons in reem sauce, chakra-baked mees, sweet poissuise, endless magnons of sparkling lanik. A violinist plays Mercalli and mournful Danfon, who are as fashionable as silken ells, furlong boots, and polished acre. More dancing follows, and Candela flings herself into a wild legua. At midnight she calls loudly to her firman to bring round the carriage, but as she passes Faraday, she furtively slips her cordel into his hand. He nods very slightly, inhaling her scent of centibar. Tonight's moment will be leptin. C'est la croix. These are Kathy's thoughts on Calculated. 
Calculated was inspired by an entry in Sylvia Plath's diaries. She was studying science and had no interest in it except for the lovely words, such as amperes, coulombs. I loved science, but I took her point and started researching the wonderful names for units of all kinds of measurement. Several seemed to suggest a Regency romance, Georgette Heyer style, and so the poem came about. A crore is a Sri Lankan unit of currency. Damien Cowger is a writer of short fiction and poetry. His work has most recently appeared in Fox Cry Review, Midwest Literary Magazine, and Denver Syntax. He lives in Athens, Ohio, where he is the managing editor of New Ohio Review. Damien estimates that he has swallowed about $1.20 in dimes in his lifetime. Cold. You pluck the moon from the November sky just to prove a point. To my surprise, it came loose from its backing with the careless ease of yanking a button from your hand-me-down peacoat. You did it because I said you couldn't, and it came off easy, yes. But like the button, the moon was needed to make its coat, its everything, sound. So please forgive me for walking away into a moonless night, because even though the tide stopped, you blamed me when I pushed your brilliant gift away and it shattered quietly in the frosty grass. It could never be fixed, and when I said that it was your fault for stealing it from the world, you looked at the stars, perhaps contemplating which were the most dazzling, and said, I did it for you. Not once as I walked away did you offer me your coat. Damien says, Cold is actually my first speculative poem. I've spent the past three or four years writing literary poetry, honing my craft in grad school, and then on my own after graduation. I've recently rekindled my love of reading speculative fiction and was on the verge of working on writing fiction again when a friend of mine challenged me to enter this contest. I'm still very green when it comes to science fiction poetry, so I am excited to be accepted into this world. The idea for the poem started with me teaching a section of my junior-level writing class this semester, in which we were discussing men writing as women, and the challenges that males face when attempting this, and I really wanted to give it a try. At the same time, I kept thinking of how lots of people seem to think that if they buy and give their loved ones every material possession in the world, then that person will love them more. And while gifts are nice and all, the reality is, what we really want is attention and to be cared for. These two ideas, combined with the call for submissions for the contest, made me think of giving someone the moon, a la George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. I just wanted to explore what it would be like to actually be given the moon. Jade Sylvan is a writer and performance artist and has had work published in PANK, The Sun, Bayou, Basalt, Word Riot, Decomp, and others. Read her work and about her various projects at her website. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Rocketman Pontum by Jade Sylvan The last rays of our sun have disappeared. The stars all spread like scattered strands of beads. I think it's going to be a long, long time before our skins are warmed again by light. 
The stars, all spread like scattered strands of beads, they're vital, but too far away to touch. Before our skins are warmed again by light, it's farther than biology allows. There, vital, but too far away to touch, somewhere beyond our measurements and modes, it's farther than biology allows, we'll find ourselves a new familiar sun. Somewhere beyond our measurements and modes, most stars we see our galaxies so far, we'll find ourselves a new familiar sun, too late for me. My sun will have a sun. Most stars we see our galaxies so far away they look like single points of light. Too late for me, my sun will have a sun. Our scholars study daily to forget. Away they look like single points of light, as if the world's worst fate were to have been. Our scholars study daily to forget the choruses of those old songs. We left as if the world's worst fate were to have been forgotten. Now I'm trying to call back the choruses of those old songs we left beneath the old horizon every night, forgotten now. I'm trying to call back the sun. It used to rise, and then it fell beneath the old horizon every night. This once I saw the northern lights back home. The sun. It used to rise, and then it fell. I thought it'd go forever, like that and this. Once I saw the northern lights back home, I swore I knew a thing or two about light. I thought it'd go forever like that, and when it petered like a campfire flame, I swore I knew a thing or two about light. We know it moves so fast it freezes time. When it petered like a campfire flame, we scanned the skies to find another sun. We know. It moves so fast it freezes time. I don't think human vessels can catch up. We scanned the skies to find another sun, all carbon made to carbon shall return. I don't think human vessels can catch up, and all the science I don't understand. All carbon made to carbon shall return. There's tons and heavy books I've never read, and all the science I don't understand. Light doesn't age, it shines, it got us there. There's tons and heavy books. I've never read about a world my son will never see. Light doesn't age, it shines, it got us there, though carbon suns all sink into the sea. About a world my son will never see, I speak half memory, half projected dream. Though carbon suns all sink into the sea, I try to paint a sunrise over black. I speak half-memory, half-projected dream. The last rays of our sun have disappeared. I try to paint a sunrise over black. I think it's going to be a long, long time. Jade has this to say about her poem. I was in the process of writing a short story about a man alone on a rocket ship, and I decided to listen to David Bowie's Space Oddity and Elton John's Rocket Man for inspiration. I noticed that several of the famous lines in Rocket Man were in perfect iambic pentameter. So I thought it'd be a fun exercise to write a formal poem based around them. I'd recently been reminded of the pontoon form by a friend who runs a pontoon-only literary journal, and I thought it might work for the subject. I wrote the poem in probably an hour or two, letting the form carry the story. 
I was surprised at the end by how much I liked how it turned out. And in case you don't know what a pontoon is, I gleaned this from Wikipedia. A pontoon is composed of a series of quatrains. The second and the fourth lines of each stanza are repeated as the first and third lines of the next. This pattern continues for any number of stanzas, except for the final stanza, which differs in the repeating pattern. The first and the third lines of the last stanza are the second and fourth of the penultimate. The first and the third lines of the first stanza are the second and fourth of the final. Ideally, the meaning of lines shifts when they are repeated, although the words remain exactly the same. This can be done by shifting punctuation, punning, or simply recontextualizing. So now, if you didn't catch it the first time, the pontoon structure bears another listen. Go on, go back. Bryant O'Hara is a programmer, poet, occasional musician, and budding maker. Not always in that order, sometimes all at once. He has worked as an industrial engineer and technical writer, and is currently a software developer. Bryant started writing poetry in earnest during the mid-1990s, performing as part of the Club Kumba Poetry Collective in Atlanta, Georgia. After a long hiatus, he revisited many of those poems and began creating new ones. The Music is Always On is his first published poem. Bryant lives in Stone Mountain, Georgia with his wife Alice and two of his seven children. The Music is Always On by Bryant O'Hara The frostbite dies away once the bass drops. These old ARP 2600s run pretty smooth when the temperature's below 50. This is the day the big data dump from the Europa probes goes online. My hands warm as I caress dials and twist static out of a patch cable. The ARP provides the seed rhythm. My algorithms water that seed with data and grow beats, lyrics, and compositions. Fragments of music blossom into hits like bosons shot out of a superconducting supercollider. They are as short-lived as they are hot. And there is more to come, for the music is always on. Ever since Joe Effington mashed up the Arecibo Observatory's decades-long data stream into the world's longest drum and bass composition, every musical hacker with a freak on for radio astronomy getting teary when they watch Cosmos has been clogging up the Internet with songs that literally take a lifetime to listen to. And here's the tricked-out, somehow-not-quite-played-out old hat thing. These songs evolve. The ones that hit the top of the charts, most of those actually take days to sink into you. That is the new music. That is the music of lives that are now very, very long. Somewhere in this world, there is a musician hacker that will take all your social data and turn it into a soundtrack. And it will never end. And the biofeedback-based symphonies are making a comeback after a brief flash in the late 2010s. Our lives are so noisy, so funky, so downright goddamn danceable, you can take the electric slide straight into the grave. The Goff set even came up with software that monitors your rate of decay and mixes the chemical data with AI-sampled video clips. Illegal as hell, but still, your corpse can not only look beautiful, but sound beautiful. 
My friend, the guitarist, hung up his axe after 30 years of touring. Not because he was old. God, who cares about that nowadays? Just wanted some peace and quiet, he said. So he went to a mountaintop to turn down the volume. It is a bit loud down here, and the music is always on. We call them the birds, the young ones. They have a new language that sounds like a vocoded modem missing the bands needed to sound like human speech. Data passes between them in packets picked up on their personal networks. Most of it is encrypted, as far as we old folks are concerned. Nothing but noise leaks out. Fragments of data get translated as something like bird calls, hence the name. In colors that slide off the human spectrum, the birds gather in subway tunnels. One among them, staggering like a zombie, opens her mouth. Squawks and electric screeches transform into something that is still not speech, but a torrent of words as if from an aphasic gangster rapper catching the Holy Ghost in the middle of evening prayers. The birds don't exactly follow her, but merely begin their own drunken counterpoint. It cycles in the tunnels, between us in the tunnels. The music is always on. Trapped in the Logos, these kids occasionally sync up with each other, and for a moment they are angels in a hoodoo choir, where the rhythm rides them until a security drone tranks the MC. As fast-acting medication kicks in, the voices lap back from the tidal pull. Without the drones, the flock would infect those with poor barriers, and the beat would go on. Our internal Wi-Fi can still hear the seed rhythm that kicked off the outbreak of song. You have to be disconnected. No, you have to be dead nowadays for it to really be quiet. We, the very old, wonder what the birds do when the power goes out. They say little then, though we know they are not mute. Perhaps they do it just to piss off the old folks. Perhaps, under all that noise, they are whispering to each other. It is hard to tell. The music is always on. Bryant wrote, The Music is Always On is a riff on some research about the impact of technology on music. I was inspired by two things. The first was a musician going by the name of Melody Sheep, who was using the autotune program to turn spoken segments of the PBS series Cosmos into music videos. Imagine Carl Sagan singing with Stephen Hawking as MC. Melody Sheep went on to create an entire album of such pieces called Symphony of Science. The second was a TED Talk given by Natalie Meebach, who had used the data of massive storms to create musical compositions as well as pieces of sculpture. Putting those two things together got me wondering what music of the future would sound like, how it would be created, and how it would be used. Last, but very definitely not least, we have the winner of the long-form category, which is also the winning poem by a non-member. Daryl Lindsay is a freelance writer, poet-songwriter from Nacogdoches, the oldest town in Texas. His haiku and tanka have won awards in the United States, Japan, Croatia, Bulgaria, Canada, and Romania. He is the author of Edge of the Pond from Popcorn Press 2012. Edge of the Pond is available on Amazon.com and from the publisher's website. The Fugitive by Daryl Lindsay Splashing paint onto faint stars, 
and more than a few planets pursuing the earthling with the bold brush who squeezes through wormholes with his vast palette intact. Fugitive of art, dabbling in skies, worthy of Michelangelo's touch, or perhaps the vertigo of a Dali day. He sketches sinews of clouds, bones of resurrection, lyrical light from starships that would exile him to crayons in a basement. He travels with a fever in his kaleidoscopic veins, mutters to meteors caught up with him in the same throb of time. He dreams of some blossoming space where he will be asked to sit at a table and drink golden nectar reserved for visiting angels. But no such alien whispers have come down the corridor, no beautiful music beckoning the fugitive to unpaint the past. He must again become comet-like, or likely perish, no time for a lotus to grow yet in such celestial mud. Tomorrow he will no doubt gnaw at the holes in colors, reflect on the angles of all the worlds not yet conceived. He will fly to his calling, though it may mean the stain of another dimension that has no intention of becoming his bouquet. But perhaps some flailing day when I am in his studio, he will quietly appear with an unvanquished masterpiece tucked underneath his weary arm. Daryl says he was reading a book of art-related poems and wed that power source to the thought of artists and writers who are often made to feel like fugitives in our culture. He thinks some would probably be better off doing their work in an alternate universe. Congratulations to the winners and to the runners-up. I read the shortlist from which Andrew Joran selected the winners, and it must have been a most difficult decision. In Poetry News, the winners of the annual Dwarf Stars Award for the best poem 10 lines or less have been announced. The award is akin to the Reisling Award, which is awarded in two categories, short and long, and short, short poetry is often overlooked. The nominees are gleaned from as many poems as the editors are made aware of. The anthology is produced, and the SFPA membership votes on their three favorite poems. This year they are... Third Place, Snowflake Galaxies, by Geo Clark, first published in Microcosms, October 9, 2011. Snowflake galaxies know two exactly the same, drifting with the night. Second place, Closure by Greer Woodard, first published in Lumen, Autumn 2011. Closure. For her third and final wish, she asked the genie to seal her conscience in the vacant lamp and toss it in the sea, a wise precaution given her first two wishes. And in first place, Blue Rose Buddha by Marge Simon, first published in The Mad Hattery from Electric Milk Bath Press, 2011. Blue Rose Buddha, blue roses in her ears, an embroidered hat to match. She sees beyond tomorrow, her lips pursed in a smirk that lasts a hundred lifetimes. She awaits her tea in silence, knowing that the end of the world won't bother her routine. Thrice, she moves her hand to swat the flies. How's that for a little bonus poetry? Through the wonder that is Kickstarter, 
I've had the pleasure of being introduced to and helping to make reality a few poetry and fiction collections, which I'd like to recommend to you. The Kickstarter phase for all of these is closed, and they were successful, so now you all get to benefit. Mike Allen should be a well-known name around these here parts. His poetry has been featured on Poetry Planet, his fiction on Starship Sofa in general, and he is the host of a segment on Larry Santoro's Tales to Terrify podcast called A Tour of the Abattoir. His Kickstarter campaign to produce Volume 4 of Clockwork Phoenix was astoundingly successful, so much so that beyond the original goal, he snagged so many backers that he is able to pay the author's professional rates and will be able to create an online digital version of Mythic Delirium, his quarterly poetry journal. Clockwork Phoenix 4 isn't available yet, but the first three volumes are. Go have a look. Cthulhu Haiku and Other Mythos Madness, Poems and Stories, was a project by Lester Smith of Popcorn Press. This was the fourth volume of poetry produced in time for Halloween. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but what I have is wonderfully fun, creepy, and horrific. All of it. And you don't have to be well-versed in the Lovecraftian mythos to enjoy it although I suspect it adds more depth to the experience. It is 120 pages long and costs $9.95. I most recently backed a campaign by Joanne Merriam of Upper Rubber Boots, which is a small press which publishes literary and speculative poetry and fiction from metaphorically remote places in ebook format. They will be publishing an anthology of poetry and fiction called Apocalypse Now, Poems and Prose from the End of Days, edited by Andrew McFadden Ketchum and Alexander Lumens. They are also going to produce 250 actual dead tree copies of this book. It includes poetry and fiction by the likes of Paolo Bacigalupi, Joyce Carol Oates, and Margaret Atwood. Release is slated on the usual major online outlets for December 21st. Julie Bloss Kelsey whose poem Comet won last year's Dwarf Stars Award, is sponsoring a sci-fi coup contest. Post an original sci-fi coup on her blog by midnight Eastern Standard Time and become eligible to win a year's subscription to Poets and Writers magazine. If you'd rather just dabble, why not have a look at Abyss and Apex, Goblin Fruit, Ink Scrawl, Stone Telling, Nightblade, or Sci-Fi Quest, all found for free on the web. As always, you can find the links to all the author's information and websites and blogs at my own blog at divadianesblogspot.com. That's it from me. Join me for my next tour of Poetry Planet. That's it. At Starship Sofa 269, put to bed. I hope you've enjoyed it. Like I say, do pop over to people's sites and say hello. You know what I mean? It, it, it really does help. And look out for next week's show. Normal show mixed in with a bit of a meta show. And just want to, you know, wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Do you know what I mean? Just have a fantastic 2013, but have a brilliant Christmas. Until next week, just like I say, good night from me. Heroes.
survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.